Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. It's Tuesday night after a long holiday weekend, but we're back. Tonight's show is sponsored by Public.com and the Public app. I use the Public app. It helps me earn more interest on my cash. I bank with one of the big banks. You could probably guess it's one of the, the four or five big banks, and they don't pay any interest at all. So every once in a while, when I've got excess cash built up, I open up the Public app. And I sweep that cash over, and it takes literally seconds. It's really easy to use. The public app currently, uh, with its high-yield cash account, is offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. Now, that's annualized, of course, but 5.1% interest on your cash versus whatever your bank is currently offering. And that has no fees, no subscription, no maximums, no minimums. And you can move that cash whenever you need to. So check out uh, public.com slash the compound to learn more. Here's my disclaimer. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Okay. So something really extraordinary happened over the last couple of days. Never happened before. We had 10 ETF issuers or nine, I think it's either nine or 10, whatever. A lot of ETF issuers all hit the market at the same time for a product that essentially uh, is all tracking the same underlying investment. So of course, I'm talking about the Bitcoin ETFs. And you know, we've seen competing factor products, let's say, uh, come along where, you know, two ETF sponsors say, oh, we're going to do uh, dividend growth. So you'll get two, three, usually not on the same day, but there will be a cluster. And we've seen this with other strategies. We've seen this with other asset classes. We've seen it with commodities. But again, it's usually one or two and it's not normally on the same day or in the, or, or in the same week. In this case, we had 10 of these things hit the market in one shot. That has not happened before. This is why people are calling it the Bitcoin ETF Derby. And it's fascinating. And I don't think there will only be one. I think more than one can win, but probably not 10. So what's going to separate the winners from the losers? And how did this even come about? We had a conversation with somebody who was on the inside of these discussions, part of the 11th hour paperwork changes, somebody who had been interacting with regulators and just part of this thing where these products went from persona non grata to, all right, fine, launch them, but you know, do this, do that, do the other thing. Matt Hogan is the CIO of Bitwise. Matt has been around the industry for a long time. He was the founder of ETF.com which grew into a huge business. He was an early believer in ETFs back when uh, a lot of people had a lot of problems with them. And he looked at digital assets in much the same way. So uh, Bitwise is one of the entrants in the Bitcoin ETF Derby. We'll talk to Matt about what it was like getting his product approved at the last minute and why he thinks the Bitwise approach will be uh, a winner. In, in in such a crowded space. So stay tuned for that. And immediately following, it's me, it's Michael Batnick. It's What Are Your Thoughts? We have a lot of fun on this week's show. We talk about the hateful eight. These are the eight most despised NASDAQ stocks 
just in terms of how far down they are from their old highs. And we're going to pick a few uh, to play for 2024. We also take a look at financial earnings. We've got numbers from uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley today. Charles Schwab is on the way and a whole lot of other stuff. So uh, if you love the show, we appreciate you leaving us a rating, a review. I'm going to send you there right now. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Red Holtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Red Holtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey everyone, it's Josh Brown. I am here with Michael Batnick. As always, Michael, say hello to the folks. Hello, hello. All right. We are talking to Matt Hogan, and Matt has had quite a week, or maybe quite a, a two or three week period. You're always very calm. I, ne- I, I can never tell if you're excited by anything. <laughs> What's the story with that? I'm pretty excited about this one, Josh. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that. I'm pretty excited. Right. You guys can't see him, but Matt is smiling from ear to ear, and you should. It's been a really long road. So- uh, just by way of introduction, Matt is the Chief Investment Officer at Bitwise Asset Management. Give us an overview. What is Bitwise? And then we'll talk about what just happened. Sure. Bitwise is a specialist crypto asset manager that was formed to create the first crypto index fund. We run the largest crypto index fund in the world. I think what makes us unique in crypto is we focus on the advisor space. That's what we built the, the business to serve. So today we offer 19 products we manage uh, north of a billion dollars in assets, and we help advisors understand the crypto market and then allocate to it through products. And we've been doing it successfully for seven years. Matt, you've been around a long time and you're not crypto native. You are like Michael and I from the world of TradFi. Uh, your background is ETF.com, fabulously successful. Uh, you've been involved in the publication, the related conferences. What made you one day wake up and say, my future is in digital assets. I want to do this bitwise thing. Oh, man. The beautiful thing, you know, we built ETF.com for 15 years and then sold it. It was a phenomenal ride. But what I took away from that is if you back up to the early days of ETFs, everyone hated them. Remember EFTs, the congressional hearings about how ETFs were destroying American entrepreneurialism. Yes. Weapons of mass destruction from the Financial Times. I mean, people hated these things. But it was so great to be part of an industry where you knew the technology was better. It was going to make the financial world more efficient. So after we sold ETF.com, I wanted to run it back. And what's another technology that everyone hates, where there are congressional hearings, where people don't understand it, but where it makes the underlying financial system more efficient, faster, and unlocks new opportunities, that was crypto. And so uh, one way to think about my career shift is I'm just running it back to, to double down on the success I had, watching ETFs go from a few billion to seven trillion. And uh, now I'm watching crypto do the same thing. Matt, six years ago, when you jumped fee- uh, headfirst into crypto, if, if you could have fast forwarded There's been obviously tremendous success in terms of the performance of these digital assets. It's now a legitimate asset class. I think that's indisputable at this point. Uh, I know you tweeted about the S&P, the S&P, S&P is now covering stable coins. Like there's been some serious advancements in the asset class. 
But in terms of, you said it's going to change the financial system for the better. Do you think that crypto has fallen short or is it still early? How do you, how do you compare those two points? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's still early and maybe it's fallen a little bit short. I don't, I don't necessarily lay, well, that's not true. Crypto deserves a fair amount of blame. We've made a number of missteps. Uh, there's been FTX, Luna, et cetera. So we, we've stepped in uh, our own issues uh, a few times. At the same time, we faced just an extraordinary level of regulatory pushback and legislative pushback that I didn't uh, expect. But when you dig underneath the surface, we have made enormous progress, right? They're now digital dollars that move at the speed of light 24-7, 365, that you can access in any country around the world. There's uh, DeFi exchanges that do as much trading volume as Coinbase with zero employees. You can get margin loans instantaneously. And Bitcoin is on its journey to being an apolitical currency rail. You have BlackRock launching Bitcoin ETFs. So a huge amount of progress. I'd say it's I'd say it's a mixed result. We've exceeded expectations in some ways and we haven't come as far as we wanted in other ways. But I have a lot more, actually, more conviction about crypto today than when I, I joined Bitwise six years ago. The deeper I got into it, the more I'm convinced it's on the same journey of ETFs. It's going to be just as disruptive. Hey, Matt, not a single, I think I'm right about this, not a single one of the nine current um, Bitcoin ETFs uses the word currency or cryptocurrency anywhere in its title or description. Do I have that right? That is exactly right. Okay, yep. so from my perspective, that is the biggest that is the biggest change in the framing of the topic. So I spoke on conference panels in 2017, 18, 19 and cryptocurrency was like the, the that was the the nomenclature that we used. Nobody yeah, uses right, Josh, that now anymore. It's just, now it's just now it's just crypto. You're right. It's either crypto or it's digital assets or it's Bitcoin, like as the brand. And by the way, I think that's what it should be because I never bought into these as a currency, but I did buy into them as some sort of an asset, even if you want to advance the theory that these assets will eventually calm down in terms of volatility and become more dollar-like. They, they, they don't need to be accepted as, as currency in order to have meaning to the financial world. It's so right. I think it's the original sin of crypto was labeling them currency because then in people's minds, you should be using them to buy coffee. And because no one sees anyone buying coffee with Bitcoin, they assume it's worthless. They say it's a failure. Well, Satoshi did that because the original white paper was, hey, we need some sort of a currency that's not under a, a central government's control because of all the problems that we've just seen during the financial crisis. So that, that original sin is like embedded in the legacy of, of the white paper itself. But it's nice that we've moved past it and we're not pretending that these are as fungible as, as, as dollars are in, in an economy. Matt, Matt, we're 15 years or so removed from the white paper. And one of the big criticisms of Bitcoin is there's no use case. It doesn't do anything, but is it enough? It works. That's what it does. It works. It's it, it just does exactly what it's supposed to do. Whether or not you're going to use it to buy a Starbucks, that's not what it does. It works. 
That is exactly right. It lets you store wealth without relying on a third-party institution. Why is it that we can only store wealth or send wealth by going through a corporation? Uh, we don't need that to be true. And Bitcoin works. It works during bull markets. It works during bear markets. It worked this year. It worked during the 2022 crash. Every 10 minutes or so, it settles a bunch of transactions. And, uh, you know, it's settling more transaction volume than PayPal, uh, most years more than more than uh, Visa now. So I think it's doing pretty well. So, Matt, the, the, the I think that one of the fundamental roadblocks to it um, being accepted for what it actually does well, you and Michael point out, is there's no 1-800 number and people make mistakes or people get tricked. There are always bad. There are bad actors using U.S. dollars, too. So there are bad actors in crypto. There are hacks. And. I think with large sums of money, individuals, maybe more so than institutions, but institutions also, people don't like the sense that no one is in charge. And that's why I think the Coinbases of the world will have a role in the crypto economy because, yes, instantaneous settlement is great without a third party overseeing it. But if you can inject a third party in there that's got some culpability for something, that's what the regulators want to see. And I think one of the things that got your product and the other products over the goal line was being explicit with the SEC and showing the regulators there are checks and balances in this ecosystem. There are people that can be held responsible um, when things don't run well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that's, you know, if you think about the SEC, they rejected Bitcoin ETFs in 2013. It's been more than 10 years. I actually agree with them that the market wasn't mature enough in 2013 to have a Bitcoin ETF. But now we have regulated third party custodians that exist under state trust charters with multiple years of experience that have insurance in place from firms like Lloyd's and Aon. We have KPMG doing uh, audit on, on our ETF. We have tax firms producing 1099s on our ETF. We're trading with firms like Jane Street and Macquarie and Cumberland. These are big institutional names that have been operating in finance for years. It's really a mature industry. Maybe the best example of this, you know, for years, crypto was offshore, it was unregulated. The largest futures exchange in crypto right now is the CME, right? The largest source of liquidity for futures volume today is the regulated CME group that trades, you know, every other regulated futures in the world. So we've moved into an institutional era. That doesn't mean you can't still self-sovereign Bitcoin and hold it yourself with your private keys and never talk to a bank. But it does mean that regulators can get comfortable that they have enough insight into this area to allow an ETF to launch. The financial columnists love the irony of uh, crypto in 15 years going from entirely decentralized. We don't need any authority to, hey, look how great this is. Jane Street is involved and the New York Fed and the SEC and uh, Fidelity. And it's, I mean, you got to admit, it's a little bit delicious. It's mildly delicious. There, There is a little bit of delicious irony there, but I'll, I'll tell you a fun fact uh, from our ETF lives. Before the gold ETF launch, people thought that that would disrupt people buying gold bars and coins. But the volume of gold bars and coins bought after the ETF 5X in the five years after that ETF launch. And the reason was 
The reason was it brought gold into the mainstream. It grew the pool so much that even though there was some competition, self-sovereign gold grow, grew. So it is deliciously ironic, and I get that. And I think underneath the surface, Bitcoin will find a way to Bitcoin. So can we talk a little bit about uh, the ETFs? Yeah. Okay. Did you expect there to be this many approvals in the the, the small window between okay, fine, to, hey, look, they're trading. I expected there to be maybe like a couple and then a few would come later, but this is it. They're all out. And uh, what was that like? Like everybody, it seems like it was like 11th hour stuff. Like people were making phone calls on Sunday nights and language was being amended live in these filings. Tell us like from the inside, what was that like without getting yourself into trouble? <laughs> it was exhausting was what it was like, Josh. I mean, uh, yeah, you never before had 10 plus issuers launching a commodity product on the same day. I'm surprised that everyone got out because uh, we were pushing our lawyers pretty hard to turn around filings in 24 hours. And the SEC was getting back to us within 24 hours. I've never seen a government agency work so quickly and efficiently with 10 different filers. It was incredible. So I was, I was uh, surprised everyone got out. It was exhausting because, you know, there was this giant fee war, right? There was this huge compression. And every night we would spend hours of game theory, thinking about the individuals in charge of each issuer, trying to figure out where to price. And then you'd do it and you'd put it to bed and you'd go to sleep. And then I'd wake up in the morning at 6 a.m. Hunter Horsley would be calling me telling me to like, let's run it back, let's do it again. I was so tired. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but it was it was exhausting. So Matt, Eric Eric Baltunas calls it the Terror Dome and you guys are in it with everybody else. Uh, and the Terror Dome refers to just the vicious, aggressive nature of competitive forces within the ETF world. So the Bitwise Bitcoin ETP Trust, ticker BITB, the, I wanna talk about the fees. So you have a 0% fee, with a waiver of six months and or $1 billion. It looks like you're, you took an almost $300 million. So you're going to get to a billion relatively in relatively short order. Can you, can you explain to the audience? What is, what exactly does that waiver mean? Yeah, it means for the, I believe it's the first six months of the trust. There's no fee at all. So Bitwise is paying the cost of custody of tax, et cetera. The expense ratio is zero. And then uh, after that period, there's a fee of 20 basis points, so 0.2%. There is a billion dollar cap on that waiver. We may exceed that. Uh, and if you get over that, it's just prorated. So, Wait, Matt, meaning me, me, if you take in a billion dollars in the first week, then that will supersede the six month provision. That is correct. Yeah, that's how all of these caps work. It, you, still, you still honor the 0% fee on the first billion. So if it's 2 billion, the fee is effectively 10 basis points, if that makes sense. It gets spread out. Hey, Matt, let's double click on that. A year ago, I would have guessed the industry standard fee would be between 75, 70 and 100 basis points. You, If you look at the most popular actively managed equity ETFs, they're all around 70, 72. That seems to be where the active, like, like it's almost like an equilibrium, right? Okay. And there are some reasons why some big issuers, they just planted their flag there and everybody else kind of like tossed their hat somewhere, you know, around that ring. 
you guys are not, I mean, you guys are in this asset gathering scramble that's way more aggressive. Is that because these are effectively commodity funds or is that because it's just so pent up? Uh, like you guys have been working on this so hard, you almost can't afford to be too high of a fee to miss the mark and and not get the ad. Like what, what is driving that fee decision? Uh, I think the public would love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's talk about how great it was. You know, two weeks ago, the largest Bitcoin fund in the U.S. charged 2%. We're at 20 basis points. That's a 90% reduction in a handful of days. That's that's an incredible savings uh, for investors. Yeah, the, the, the short answer is we have to be relevant, right? Bitwise is building a crypto asset manager for financial advisors. We have to be relevant out of the gate so that we can compete long-term for flows. We think long-term we can win in this market because every day 60 plus people get up at Bitwise, all they think about is crypto. We have a 20-person distribution team talking to financial advisors. We'll talk about it when bull markets are happening, when bear markets are happening. We think we'll win. But in ETFs, if you don't get out of the gate strong, if you don't have sufficient trading volume, if you're not trading at tight spreads, and our, our ETF has been trading at penny or two penny wide spreads, you can't compete. It's very hard to come from way back in the field to establish a leadership position. You need to be near the front. And I think that drove everyone to be very competitive. We were happy to launch with the lowest fee. Um, but yeah, really compressed it. Matt, so you had you guys had a monster day one. I, I think you were either number one or number two. You can correct you could correct the record. Number one. Okay. F- congratulations on that. How did can you t- take us under the hood? Like how does that work? Do you have customers lined up ready to go out of the gate? Do you know where the flows are coming from? What does that whole process look like of launching an ETF? Yeah, it felt like you had to hit on every possible point. So, you know, even last year, we started uh, doing more brand advertising. We did the most interesting man in the world. Amazing, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. It was a lot of fun. But we we realized we were coming into market against giant firms like BlackRock and Fidelity. We had to level up public understanding of Bitwise. Uh, And so and so we did that. You can't pre-sell an ETF. Right. So you can't talk to people specifically about an ETF before it launches, but you can build a relationship. So Bitwise had been building relationships with advisors for seven years. I think we did 20,000 meetings last year to give you a scale of the of the discussion level. And all that translates into some level of flows. Uh, You can also have discussions around seed and anchoring and those sorts of things. So. We were thinking, we, we sort of felt like in order to compete, we had to win in everything. Pre-brand marketing, day of marketing, uh, seed, expense ratio, you know, discussions and familiarity with people leading up to the, to the launch. And uh, we, did, we did very well in, in day one and, and did pretty well in day two. And we feel, we feel like we got out of the gate fast enough. If you could fast forward six months from now, a year from now, what do you think is going to determine who, who some of the winners are and why some others fall behind? Yeah, I think there are probably three factors. One is fees. You have to be competitive on fees. I don't think anyone who's outside of the 20 basis point range is going to compete. People just won't pay 50% more for exposure. Um, we're 20% cheaper than BlackRock. Maybe, maybe that's enough. But in that range, I think it's really important Uh, The second, I would say, is crypto expertise. I really do think advisors want crypto expertise. You know, there's so much news in this space. 
that when there's a story on in Congress or there's a regulatory development or something happens on chain, they want someone to call and they want someone who knows how to trade crypto under the hood. And the third will just be brand and persistence, which is kind of kind of together. You know, brands will will attract uh, their value, but people who are out selling this every day is what's going to matter. You still have to get on national account platforms. You still have to go meet with people in their offices. You still have to do lunches. I think over time that will be the determinant who is out there actually talking to advisors about this, assuming. There are five ETFs that have liquidity. It's who's following up every so, day. So Matt, I, I made the comment on TV on Thursday when all of these things started trading. We were down at the New York Stock Exchange and there were a bunch of posts and, you know, Sonnenschein was walking around with his retinue and he's a really big part of the story. If it weren't for Grayscale and their uh, landmark lawsuit, none of these would be trading right now. Um, so I don't know if you, if you called them and said thank you or yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I thank them on the, on the floor of the exchange. I know those and now guys, you can compete, compete them into dust, but you, you said, thank you. All right, right. So this is my point. Is there room for multiple Bitcoin ETFs to exist? I said, yes, there is. And the reason that I think there is, is because I believe they'll be used differently. The grayscale product is going to probably even though the fees aren't being reduced to the same extent that you guys are, it still probably has the most liquidity right now because it had this huge head start. It still has a lot of brand awareness. That ticker symbol appears in millions of brokerage accounts, I believe. Okay. There's value to hedge funds that want to trade in and out of Bitcoin during the course of the day where there's enough liquidity for them to do that without affecting price. And we know that because we've seen the way certain emerging markets ETFs that are priced way higher than others continue to be utilized for trading. So that's one use. You seem to be making the opposite bet. I read an interview where you said that it's really the advisor relationships that are going to be the edge for Bitwise. So I want to quote you and then have you react to your own quote. Yeah, I mean, I will say I do think there'll be multiple winners. I don't think this is a case of winner take all. Grayscale will have that trading volume. BlackRock will have its relationships. Fidelity has its customers. You know, ARK has Kathy Wood and a lot of retail demand. We just think the native audience of this ETF, the native long-term audience is financial advisors. Retail investors can access crypto in multiple ways. Uh, hedge funds can use futures and other derivatives to access liquidity. The people who will buy and hold this asset class are, in our view, people who couldn't access it before, but want one to 5% of their portfolio in crypto. I think that's financial well, that's your So that's your edge that's, because uniquely, uh, BlackRock's got great advisor relationships. I don't know, I don't know if they're particularly uh, aiming at that market in the way that you are right now. This is you. You said the vast majority of wealth is controlled by either financial advisors who help other people invest or institutions. That's 80% of the wealth. So we went from zero to $44,000, I guess, per Bitcoin, essentially capturing only one-fifth of the market. And what ETFs do is they open up the other four-fifths, and that's really substantial, particularly at a time where there's a relative scarcity of supply of new Bitcoin coming onto the market. And that's why I think people underestimate it. 
Uh, I agree with myself. That sounds great. That sounds great. I think that is that is right. true. Uh, you you true. would you would forgive the majority of financial advisors for maybe waiting a few months to see which of these things blows up, if any, uh, given how much headline risk there is for fiduciaries. Um, I don't think it's going to be an overnight one percent sleeve in most financial advisors. Uh, asset allocation. It's, it looks like you agree with me based on the vigorous uh, head shaking. I'll tell you what we see, and we've been working with advisors for six years. What we see is they study it for a handful of months, then they allocate in their personal account, then they allocate for one or yes. two clients who are asking for it, and then maybe they allocate across a sleeve at 1%, and then maybe they up that to 2.5%. But those last two steps don't happen for everybody. The first group does study, personal account, one or two clients. So this is going to be a, you know, this is a multi-year story. Anyone who thinks this is success or failure will be determined in a week is just wrong. This will roll out over months and quarters and years. Matt, I can't think of anybody who can answer this question better given your background at the intersection of ETFs and Bitcoin. One of the tricky things about the ETF with Bitcoin is that it trades on the stock exchanges and there are normal market hours. Bitcoin is an incredibly volatile asset class and probably like everything else, less trading is better than more trading. But that being said, if Bitcoin is down 8% overnight because there's a leverage wipeout and I want to take advantage of that opportunity and buy more, I can very easily do that at any at any custodian, any exchange that sells Bitcoin. I can't do that with the ETF. So how long do you think it's going to be before we get extended hours, uh, maybe 24-7, including weekends. Do you think that's in the future? I think it's in the long-term future, but it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I mean, we've had these issues in ETFs before in emerging markets and other places that aren't open at the same time. Um, but it, it feels inevitable to me. Like long-term, it feels inevitable, but I think it's multiple years. But that is a risk people need to understand about these ETFs. You know, we, we launched on a Thursday. We traded through Friday, 4 p.m. It's not opening until Tuesday, right? I mean, that's an eternity in Bitcoin. Hey, Matt, and, I want uh, to talk about the potential for the asset class. Um, this, is, this is more from you. Uh, having spent 15 years in the ETF industry, you watched the gold ETF launch. We talked about it a little bit before. You mentioned that when the gold ETF first launched, gold was a $2 trillion market. Today, it's a $15 trillion market. And you believe that the ETF has contributed significantly to that. So taking that logic and applying it to digital assets or Bitcoin in particular, do you do you feel that there is that level of maybe not 15 trillion, but just that um, that exponential adoption curve for digital assets now that they can live and breathe inside of a Schwab account, inside of a Fidelity account as a ticker symbol? Like t tell us, tell us how you see that developing. Absolutely. Do you remember pre-gold ETF? People I did. Gold Michael was wasn't born yet. <laughs> <laughs> they were gold bugs. They, they were, were weirdos. They, they, they were they were ornery weirdos. That's right. That's right. Now they're just ornery because there's nothing weird about buying gold in an ETF. That is right. But now, yeah, now gold can sit down at the dinner table with stocks and bonds and real estate. And, uh, and have a conversation. Crypto is going to be the same thing. I absolutely think it's that kind of exponential growth. Think about a world 
where, uh, where regulators and Congress are extremely hostile to Bitcoin. And then think about a world where BlackRock and Fidelity uh, offer Bitcoin ETFs and are out there talking to people about this asset class uh, every day. I just think, um, I think it's night and day. I think there's no way this isn't a many, many trillion dollar industry as that grows into maturity. Now, it didn't happen overnight in gold. It took multiple years. But, uh, you know, could this asset class, not Bitcoin specifically, become a $10 trillion market? Of course it could. Ironically, uh, the fact that there are now multiple options for mainstream uh, investors to add this to their portfolio, in my opinion, and this is more delicious irony, this significantly reduces the possibility of another Sam Bankman-Fried or the asshole from Celsius. Like these guys have now been deprived of the oxygen that fueled their growth. They had this massive information asymmetry. They had this situation where they appeared to be the only game in town for people that wanted exposure. I don't think you could get another SBF uh, in, in today's world. And I think that changed overnight. And that's ironic because – you know, the, the regulators were so focused on protecting the public. And in reality, had there been well-oiled machinery of ETF trading all along, it probably would have been more protective versus what we get, what, what we ended up with, which is offshore circuses. How do you feel about that? I couldn't agree more. FTX wouldn't have happened. Celsius wouldn't have happened. That's because right. People would make the easy. Who would send their money to the Caymans if they didn't have to? No way. You wouldn't do no it. No way. No okay. way. And that's been true throughout crypto's history. It's been. It's, it's funny. How, it's funny how like uh, how that how that works out. I mean, this is an argument that people have been making for ten years. Give us the ETF, and the criming might stop. <laughs> that is right. They, oh, just, they by, didn't see it that way. And by the way, we'll save you know hundreds of millions of dollars each year in fees. Right. It's 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 a it's it's literally a win win. The world's a better place uh, than it was two weeks ago. Uh, last question for me, Matt. Uh, people just I, not to be too short termism, but I'd like to talk briefly about the recent performance of Bitcoin. People are saying it's sort of sold the news, maybe a little bit disappointed that it didn't just go vertical. I mean, it's up 50 percent over the last three months. I don't know exactly what people were expecting. Uh, what are your thoughts on how it's traded since last Wednesday, Thursday? Look, I, I think it's been great. I mean, yeah, two days, um, two days in the in the regular markets. Uh, it was also up 155 percent last year. When moon? <laughs> it's coming, Josh. Look, if, if you this was a well choreographed event, so your baseline assumption should be it was priced in. Priced in doesn't mean that it sells down to 30 grand. It just also doesn't mean it sells up to 60 grand. It means meh. And actually, although we got some volatility, the end result was kind of met. We're about where we started. I think, you know, I've used this analogy before. Crypto natives have a good framework for this, which is the halving. Every four years, the amount of new Bitcoin being produced falls in half. Prices tend to rise around that because it impacts supply and demand. But they don't rise on the day of the halving. They rise in the years surrounding it. And that's the same. Anticipation. There, These are these are. It's a, it's an investment market. People don't wait for the news to react to it. That that is exact. That's exactly right. But when you look out over the next year, you sometimes uh, investing is complex. Bitcoin's price is set by supply and demand. When you look out over the next year, 
There's a $7 billion reduction in new supply from the halving, which occurs in April. That's when the amount of new Bitcoin being produced falls in half. That takes seven. So that's when it's going to go up. What day in April? Yeah. <laughs> Easy there. Easy there. I'm not April even going to say. I know, but I'm not even going to say. Um, but you have $7 billion out, and then you have ETFs. They took in $1.4 billion in their first two days. Maybe they'll take in $10 million this year. That's a supply and demand shock. I think that will be priced in. I think we're ultimately going to trade to new all-time highs this year, but uh, it'll take a while. It'll take a you know some months. Matt, it looks like it's four o'clock in the morning where you are. I can see pitch black out the window behind you. So I want to just say thank you for getting up to do this with us. Uh, let's tell people where they can read more about the Bitwise um, ETF. First of all, what is the official name of the ETF? It's the Bitwise Bitcoin ETF now. Yeah. Okay. And where can people read more about the the risks, the portfolio, how you guys manage it? Because I, I think there's going to be a lot of curiosity now. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say two things. First, go to bitbetf.com. That's the website. Bit B, B-I-T-B. B-I-T-B. Okay. That's, that's the ticker. You can read about uh, the low cost, what it holds, et cetera. And, uh, and then go to bitwiseinvestments.com. I'll make one, one note. I write a weekly CIO memo. If you want to know what my thoughts are on the market, you can get that for free, whether you invest in our fund or not. Very cool. You're listen. You're uh, you're you're doing the thing. I know you, how hard you guys work for this. It's here. You're doing it. It's working. Uh, we don't know where the price is going, but we just know that there are now vehicles that people can utilize. It seems like it's a a, a relief off everyone's shoulders, probably including the regulators. I think that's right. And, uh, you know, it's day three. Let's see where we are at day 300. Yeah, of I think course. It's going to be pretty fun. All right. Well, thank you so much for getting up to do this with us. Uh, Matt Hogan, ladies and gentlemen, check out BitB. Uh, check out uh, Bit, what is it? Bitwiseinvesting.com? Bitwiseinvestments.com. Yep. Bitwiseinvestments.com. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks, guys. gangsters tuesday night gave you the day off yesterday no markets today i expect everybody focused justin carrington is here from australia good eye mate how'd i do was that good mike was that good was that like good day good eye good eye good eye yeah like good day but it's yeah 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 no? not bad not, not bad. bad all right garrett peterson is here Roger is here. Kelly SF, what's up? Dave Wilson, we see you. Joe Altamoro, Micro GX, Cliff. Everybody's here. So glad you guys are here. Hi, Pam. Hi, Michael Skyros. Okay. Uh, tonight's show is sponsored by our friends at Public and the Public app. Michael, what's going on with Public these days? I'm still in my treasuries. I was just looking before okay. we hopped on. I mentioned this yeah. last time or one of the times. But you get it, the interest just comes every day. This is what it's look like. Just straight up, up yeah, and to the right. What's, what's and what's bad about that? Those those sweet, delicious six month U.S. Treasuries. So one of the big conversations right now amongst all the financial companies that are reporting is how much cash sorting is going on, or how likely it is that their customers will remain 
in money market funds or treasuries this is the or whatever. This is the question. This is the question. And uh, we'll have some opinions to share later on on the show. Thank you so much to uh, public.com slash, is it slash compound? Make sure you click the link. There's all sorts of disclaimers there as well. And uh, get yourself set up. It's, it's, uh, it's really easy. I use it myself. Okay. Um, we had nine Bitcoin ETFs come public in one day or or in two days. This is this is uh, kind of a, a derby. I was making fun of it, like the derby. No, that's what it is. It's like a, it's like a horse race. Nine horses bolted all at the same time. It's pretty cool. Nate Karasi called it, or somebody, I think it was Nate, called it the Cointucky Derby. Yeah, no, I, I like it. I was, originally I was like, oh, rolling my eyes, but that's what it is. Yeah. It is. Sure. So we don't, we don't hate that. Can you, can you tell me, uh, let's, let's give our viewers this uh, table really quickly. All right. So what you're looking at here is the ticker. You're looking at the name of the fund itself. You're looking at the issuer. And then it's assets under management as of, I guess, yesterday, right? So can you tell me, Mike, confirm for me, Grayscale hasn't lost any of its AUM, mm. even though it's the highest cost issuer on this list. The other funds are now bringing money in, but they're not necessarily taking it from GBTC. Do, am I reading that right? That's not true. I think Grayscale lost quite a bit of money. I don't want to throw out an exact number, but it's a lot. I thought I they were at twenty-seven billion last week. It was no, it was, it was more. No, they're, was they're more. losing money. They're losing money. No, I would assume. I just thought it would. I thought it would happen quicker. It, Dude, it, it did. It, I'm it telling you, it didn't happen overnight. Uh, I'm just going to Balchunas's feed. I mean, I th I think it was. I, I don't want to misquote anything, but like 500 million on day one, it was it was not nothing. I guess in one day, that's a lot. Yeah, it was but not it's nothing. Still, all right, but it's still uh, more than 20x the, the next closest. Like it, it's, it's still gigantic relative to the field, but it's only been three days. Dude, if you hold GBTC, which was up, how much was it up last year? 400%? Yeah, huge. Crazy, crazy number. If you're holding that in a brokerage account, you're yeah. not selling, no. You're Why? you're gonna you're gonna because you're you're gonna pay the taxes. If it's a taxable account, you're gonna pay the taxes. Just to, I mean, listen, the fees are high, but you're not you're not paying those taxes just the fees to get are into high, it. right? The fees are high, but they're not as high as uh, a capital gains tax. They're not capital gains the high, fund. so <laughs> a lot of the money is trapped. It's a really good point. Okay, uh, the iShares Bitcoin Trust and the Fidelity Wise Origin Bitcoin Fund look to be neck and neck. The former is 500 million. The latter is 427 million. I would imagine that those two can stay neck and neck because both companies are uh, equipped with about the same amount of marketing firepower. Uh, so maybe you could make the argument that iShares has an edge in talking to. Eh, I don't even think I'd make this argument, actually. Like, I, I almost feel like they are talking to an identical type of investor. What do you, well, what do you think? BlackRock is more BlackRock is more advisor based. Like there's not a there's is it, but is it though? Fidelity is the second largest custodian for yeah, financial but, advisors but, in but, the world. But regular people are going to fidelity.com. Do it yourselfers. Most people are not retail is not going to iShares.com. That's advisors. But they run com, but they run commercials directed at retail investors. Who does? Uh, iShares iShares TV yeah. commercials. Yeah. So I don't know it. 
So, all right, here's my opinion. Anyway, but on, but on, on iShares on iShares website, splashed across the homepage, access Bitcoin. Right on the homepage. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So, so what's your my take? take? Is Fidelity? First of all, Fidelity didn't get bullish on crypto a month ago, uh, the way that Larry Fink and I and BlackRock pivoted. They put in a filing, and then all of a sudden, all he wanted to talk about was Bitcoin. Yeah, when did um, they launch Fidelity Digital Assets? Not yesterday. I don't know, Ten years ago. <laughs> There were there were articles in 2017 about Abby Johnson mining Bitcoin in her office. Mm -hmm. So you could now you could argue if that's the case, they should be even further along than they are. I think they just play it very cautiously. Fidelity is very conservative. Like they they could I guess they could have done what Grayscale did and launched a trust, but there would have been so much negative publicity from that approach that they probably just figured, you know what? We'll wait till everyone else goes, and then we'll just outspend them. And they could, they have direct access to more individual investors than anybody on this list. Mm -hmm. So I think that they're going to stay neck and neck with with BlackRock for a while. That's I just my that. guess. I agree with that. Do you think uh, so? Ben was underwhelmed by the one point four billion dollars that they so took I. in. I think but that's I'm a, a lot baby. of money. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say I have no patience, though, as you know. So, what did you just so say? Did you reaction, say baby? What was that? I'm like a baby. Like if it's oh. not $10 billion on the first day, it's good it's, to me. It's like, I, I don't even want to talk about it. I, I think that I expected much more. I've told you, I thought this would be this like massive price catalyst, but, and it's been three days. So it's a little bit childish, but like a billion dollars is not a lot of money. I mean, it, it really isn't for 10 ETFs. It's you just thought, not a lot of money. You thought the ETF would be a big catalyst on day one yeah. for price? Yeah, because I thought not just money coming into the ETF, but people front-running the money coming into the ETF. I just thought I mean, we'd they, see But more they did. It. They did. At the end of October. They did already. At the end of they October, Bitcoin price. was at 30000 and now it's at forty four. Yeah. It's a huge move. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, what do you think these look like at the end of the week? The numbers? Do any of them break a billion this week? Uh, yeah. You, yeah. you think so? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, Bitwise, 225 million. Kathy Wood, uh, ARC, 21 shares, Bitcoin ETF, 111 million. Our friend Jan Van Eck has a horse in the race. Van Eck Bitcoin Trust, 82 Hold million. Best ticker. Hold on. Uh, Franklin Bitcoin, also, I mean, we're friends with everybody on this list. We almost can't, we almost can't choose favorites. Um, this is Franklin Templeton, right? Yep. Okay. Franklin Bitcoin ETF, 50 million. Invesco Galaxy Bitcoin. What did they teamed up with uh, Novogratz? Yes. Okay, 23 million. Uh, Wisdom Tree, also a friend of ours. Wisdom Tree Bitcoin Fund, 3 million. And Valkyrie Bitcoin ETF. We don't, we don't know these people, do we? I don't know them. Valkyrie? No? Okay, 1 million. All right, so those are the, those are the products. And... Yeah, I mean, I I guess they'll they'll keep attracting capital. If Bitcoin runs to like seventy five thousand, every one of these firms will like ten x. <laughs> that that's that's that would be my guess. The question is, can the flows alone push the price up to sixty five or seventy five thousand? Yes, I, I I don't feel strongly in either direction. Tell me why. But I think that I think that if this thing were to run stupidly, and I'm not saying it will. But I think that actually you'll have more retail money coming in, but these yeah. ETFs were for advisors and advisors are less likely 
to chase a parabolic move, I would think. Until, until they start hearing from their clients that they're in Bitcoin ETFs and making all this money. And why aren't you like incorporating yeah, this into my portfolio? Yeah, I don't know about that. It hasn't happened yet. I'm just saying it's a thing that could happen. Could. I, th I mean, I would guess that, I would guess that sentiment will follow price in this asset class like every other. So I don't know. Just, 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 just my take. I think there's no reason to think that investors aren't going to uh, be yelling at their advisors for missing this because they, they do it all the time. So. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, anything else to say here? We have Matt Hogan on the audio podcast tonight. So for those of you who want to hear the inside take on the crypto derby, that is uh, that is right from the horse's mouth. And uh, Matt is the CIO at Bitwise, and he's been very involved in getting these things launched. So if you want to listen to us later, you'll you'll uh, you'll enjoy that conversation. Okay, um, Matt is Matt is Matt is the most coherent, sane, yeah, rational, rational voice in crypto, in my opinion, or at least right near the top of the list. He almost doesn't even belong in the asset class. Like, there's nothing crypto about him, which which is nice. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was a great conversation. All right, I want to talk about the Barons Roundtable, and why do we talk always talk about this? I think we all know what's obvious is that listen, like nobody's making. Nobody's recommending that you make changes to your portfolio based on what these people are saying. Nobody can see the future. But nevertheless, it's interesting to see what people think today. So that's the value that I get out of reading it. It's nice to see where, where people that are controlling real yeah, pools of money, real pools of money are. And as usual, there's as always there isn't at the Barron's Roundtable, there's a lot of this is gonna be a stock picker's market talk. Like that's, you know. It's always that way. But I wanted to pick out, I picked out four blocks that I wanted to riff on. Uh, so this was the consensus. Um, this is from David Groh. He's the chief investment officer of T. Rowe Price. He said, we are probably not going to have a recession in 2024. Interest oh, rates. What's that? Good. Interest rates will likely come down. But stocks are expensive. There is no margin of safety. The macroeconomic consensus has to be right to support stocks here. I would agree with that. Um, I agree with Bill that it will be a minus or plus 5% kind of year. That was basically the consensus among the roundtable, if I had to sum it up. So there's not a lot of euphoria, at least out of these people. Nothing resembling euphoria. Barons used to have much more colorful people on this roundtable. Like, they used to have Bill Gross on this thing. And uh, I don't remember some of the... I don't remember like all of the names, but they used to have they they used to have like much more colorful characters who would never be talking about plus minus five percent. So just a, just an observation. Gabelli's always right. here. He he was on here again. Um, yeah. Son Altasai said, given the massive bond and equity market rallies at year end, financial conditions take us back to when the Fed funds rate was one point seven five percent. Wow, the market has eased for the Fed. So it, so maybe. Because the market has done so much of the heavy lifting and easing already, maybe we don't get the six rate cuts that are priced in or whatever it is. Mm. That would not be bullish. Uh, no, you're going to have to get some rate cuts or they're going to start saying that we're too tight. They're going like, to start saying that rates are a drag on, on 
uh, productivity and and potential GDP, and we're you know we're we're underperforming. What what uh, trend that. They, they can't hold those weight cuts back all year. They could, they could probably do it for the first six months, though. If I had to know one variable from the future, 12 months from now, I'd be like, tell me where, where rates are now, and a Fed funds rate. But we could, be at, we could be at 3% because we're just uh, being less restrictive, or, or we could be at 3% because there's an emergency rate cut. Obviously, I hope the former, not the latter, right? So even knowing where rates are wouldn't necessarily give you that was anybody in the round? Was anyone in the round table like far out of consensus on rate cuts this year? Was anyone like no cuts or the, yeah, or yeah, hikes? yeah? There was there okay. was one person who's like, "You guys are smoking crack." Like, there's no way. Uh, and the, I, I'm paraphrasing. I don't think they actually said that. Who was, um, was it? Barry Ritholtz? Who was uh, it? Here's another one. Uh, Lisa Sue, the CEO. I forget who said this. I, I forgot to give him credit. The CEO of AMD is talking about a 400 billion dollar accelerator GPU market by 2027. That is a massive ramp from $45 billion today, where NVIDIA's data center revenue sits. It implies more than a trillion dollars of data center and cloud AI spending by 2027. And I think if if this actually happens, then this is more important than any macroeconomic headwinds or tailwinds. Well, can I say one thing? It was last year. We did not have an economy last year that would otherwise justify a 50% run in the NASDAQ. And so, you did not have earnings growth X these gigantic tech stocks. Earnings correct. were flat last so, year. If you take these out, it was much worse. So if you have that kind of earnings growth from the largest market cap weights in the market, it could be yet another year where the fundamentals of very large companies becomes much more important to the, the headline earnings than blah, 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 macro, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened last year. I, I mean, I suppose it could happen this year. If it does, there are a lot of stocks that are still too cheap relative to what that would imply. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, the most out of consensus thing you could say is that the NASDAQ crushes the, the, the S&P this year. <laughs> like nobody thinks it can happen again to the extent that it just did. It totally could. Totally could. Totally could. Yeah. Here's one more. You always have these. I mean, this is just because, of course, somebody had to say this. Monetary policy has been highly contractionary, but our chronic fiscal deficit is a disaster. It was $1.54 trillion last year, but will rise to an estimated $1.57 trillion this year and $1.76 trillion next year. The deficit is running at about 6% of GDP, which is unsustainable. The national debt is now $34 trillion or about 1.23 times GDP. We are on a perilous course. Now, I'm not saying this person is wrong. I'm just saying that this is always in there. Always. Okay. If you please, sir, who said this? So fixed. In, this is a fixed income person for sure, it's right? Be. It's got to be. Yeah. Speaking of that, gun, gun, Gunlock hit the, hit the headlines this afternoon. 75% chance of a recession. <laughs> Stocks are too expensive. I mean, sure. I mean, there's always a chance. All Let's right. See. Hold on. I'm, I'm going to tell you who said it. Watch how good I am at this. This is gonna be a uh, this is gonna be a fixed income manager for sure. For sure. You know what I'm searching for? Monetary policy. Okay, it's Scott Black. He's been on this thing forever. You know who he is? Delphi management. Scott's good. All right. Not a bond uh, guy. No. Uh not a bond guy. All right. Uh 
financials uh, reported uh, last week. We don't have to rehash uh, the banks, but let's get into uh, Goldman and Morgan. Uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley were this morning, and then Schwab is tomorrow. Let's yep. start with Goldman Sachs. Like on the surface, it's a great rebound after a, it's a horrible year, and it was not a good quarter either, but it was like a definitive progress for David Solomon's efforts to clean this mess up. And he the didn't theme, make most of the mess. The theme of the call was they kept saying, we're narrowing Under the sea. <laughs> what? What was the theme? We're narrow. Yeah. What is this, bat mitzvah? We're narrowing <laughs> our strategic focus. Okay, good. Good How idea. We know that. So, so they I think they're already getting credit for that. Green in the, in Sky the stock and price. the loan book at Marcus, and they're, they're, they're refocusing on what they're good at. They got out of this uh, General Motors credit card deal they had. They got out of the Apple deal. Looks like Apple got rid of them, but either way, did you like, did you it, did you did you listen to the earnings call? No, Mike I Mayo is su- Mike Mayo is such a ball buster on these calls. I love it. Yeah, he's great. Like he's, he's not so a ball buster. He's, he has tough questions. It's he has buy ratings on all of them, so he could he could he could break a little balls. It's okay. They don't they don't get mad at him because he's just been around forever. You know what I mean? He he predates all of the CEOs, and when they're gone, he'll still be there asking questions. Uh, see, you know what I mean? It's like, what do you want to like complain about? Mike Mayo is like complaining about the weather. Like, what are you going to do about it? Um, let me share a couple of things with you that, that, uh, uh, Sean and I pulled out. So first revenue came in at 11.3 billion up 7% that beat the 10.8 billion expected earnings were $5.48 versus $3.51 expected. There's some messiness here. Um, but basically, earnings, earnings two billion for the quarter, up fifty one percent year over year. They had eight straight quarters of earnings declines, and then they finally uh, were were able to to beat on the number. Investment banking revenue is still down; it's down twelve percent year over year. Um, trading is still down; it's down three percent. Those businesses come back after the market comes back, so that should be this year. That's how that works. Somebody asked so, a question right. about, about activity following the stock market. And he was like, yeah, basically. Well, that's always been my point. Like, why own Goldman Sachs? Just buy the NASDAQ. It, there's no way Goldman's going up if the market just went down. Stock looks good. I mean, the stock looks good right now. Yeah. Stock looks good. Uh, it had a monster run. It's at, like, prior resistance, and it's not giving anything back. It's trading well. They're not hiring people, which after most years like 2023, you would see these banks – loading up on new employees to capitalize. They learned their lesson. Headcount is down 1%. Um, their, the, the quarter strength came from asset and wealth management, which is a smaller part of their business than it is from Morgan Stanley, which we're going to talk about in a second. But revenue in that division was up 23%. I'm not exactly sure how they're making that money. Alts. So th- they hit, They hit. I think they, uh, they gave a 10-year target. I think it was 10 years of $250 billion or something like that in, in alternatives, and they hit it. So I think that's where a lot of the money is coming from. So they're making their money by taking wealth management assets and putting them into their own liquid alt funds or alt funds. I don't know if they're that's liquid or not. On. So liquid 40%- Liquid or not liquid. They said 40%, I believe it was 40% of the, inflow, of the net flows were from their wealth management clients. Okay, so not fiduciary activity, but nonetheless, clients want alts, Advisors want alts. Here's alts. 
Mm-hmm. Waltz pay Goldman a lot of money, much more than uh, three basis points on an ETF. So, okay. So that's that's the answer to the riddle because no one else had news like that. And let's get into Morgan Stanley now. Uh, or do we want do we want to pop? Do we want to pop a couple of these slides real quick? Just tell people what this is. Put this up. What, what's what's notable about this? I know it's what I just uh, laid out. Uh, I mean, investment banking fees weren't down that much considering how much activity had slowed. So not terrible. Oh, oh, FIC was better than expected. Uh, it's fixed income commodities currency. Uh, I think that was a bright spot. I don't, I don't think it was like great, but I think it was better than expected, which probably helped. All right, next slide. So this is just Goldman Sachs price. This looks like a breakout. I mean, I suppose it could be, it could be, it could get turned away at 386 is the the previous. I don't know. Stock looks good to me. What do and you think? if you if you zoom out a little bit further back to the end of December, it got turned away here. So yeah, this is the zone. This is the zone. It's it's holding it. So okay. So. Um. All right. And Morgan Stanley. So this is the first quarter that was presided over by Ted Pick, who is the new CEO, James Gorman, who had been there for a very long time, has uh, officially retired. And uh, I guess this quarter is the last of the, the Gorman era. Um, but Ted Pick was on the on the conference call. So they asked uh, a lot about, that, about the transition. It's it's not, I mean, obviously they hope for it to be a seamless transition. James Gorman had done a really good job. They shared a really great chart of the open 15 years of transformation. And yeah, let's, let's take a look at this. So in 2000, from 2009 to 2014, Morgan was really sort of like Goldman. It was an investment bank. That's what they were known for with a wealth management yeah. arm. And now it's almost a wealth management company with, a, with an investment banking arm. So 38% or 39% of their profitability came from wealth and investment management. The other 61% was from institutional you know, investment banking. And it's flipped. It's completely flipped over the last 15 years. So it's ha- half the business is wealth management. So they're now up to $6.6 trillion in assets. They've got a, t- a target of $10 trillion, which I don't know why they wouldn't get there. They added a trillion dollars in net new assets over the last three years alone. Like really just incredible stuff. Well, they underperformed on net new assets last quarter and wealth management revenue was actually flat year over year. Morgan Stanley had to live in the same reality as everyone else in wealth management, which is that 5% yields uh, uh, as a risk-free return are really, really difficult to swim against that, swim against that tide. And so they had a flat year over year and that's why the stock got hammered today. So Goldman was able to grow its wealth and asset management division because it's it's shoveling client assets into higher fee funds. Great. Congratulations. It's also growing off a smaller base. Morgan Stanley's wealth business is massive. It's a bigger base, harder to grow. And they had to fight that same tide that we've been talking about. And that's that's why Morgan Stanley got hammered today and Goldman went up. That's would you agree with that? Yeah, Morgan Stanley. So they're 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 targeting 30% margins on their wealth management business. And it's half it's half it's half their business, more than half their business, actually. Problem is, uh, they didn't hit it. They missed. They missed that thirty uh, percent number. By, by a lot, and the market like, didn't like lot, it. By a lot, it was like twenty four percent or so, and a lot of it was due to, as you mentioned, cash. So they said twenty two to twenty three percent of their client accounts are in cash or cash equivalents, 
and that is not a high margin business for them. Dude, I, that's, I can't believe that number. They're saying a quarter of their clients' money is in cash? It's wild. Like how? How? Think about how big Morgan Stanley is. Anyone is anyone advising like, these people? That's like a trillion and a half in, in cash and cash equivalents. That's a lot. It's a lot it's of too, money. It's too, but it's too, unless you tell me the average age of their client is 75 years old, which I don't think it is. It just, it seems like something, there's not, there's not enough advice. If you're doing wealth management, you're supposed to be giving advice. Seems excessive. It, it seems excessive. Yeah. If the sum total of all of your advice that you're giving all of these clients is a quarter of their assets are in cash, yeah. you might want to change the the way you're delivering that so, advice. The stock, the stock got hammered today, down four percent. And the stock, I mean, it's a no man's land. It doesn't look terrible. It doesn't look, you know, it doesn't look good. Yeah. Oh, the other thing, you wonder why they have so much in cash. Look, look what the chief strategist has been going around saying, um, Mike mm, Wilson. Mm. So you got you got this confluence events. You got a risk free rate that's five percent. <laughs> you got a chief strategist of the firm basically guaranteeing recessions in bear markets. I don't think he is anymore, but that's that's what has been going on. Um, and I don't, I don't know, maybe they made some acquisitions where there were a lot of cash-laden accounts that weren't being advised, and maybe that's – I don't know. It, seem, it seems very high. Okay. Uh, is there anything else worth saying on Morgan? Mm-mm. Okay. Schwab is tomorrow. Uh, I own if it. you're listening to this Wednesday, you already have the number. You own the stock? I do. Okay. Expectation is $0.67 cents in earnings per share, which would be a decline year over year of 38%. Four and a half billion in quarterly revenue, which would be down eighteen percent. Um, Schwab has seen two straight quarters of year-over-year gross profit decline. However, revenue was marginally up those two quarters, so margins have come down two quarters in a row. It's up because so much of Schwab's business is cash management, and if yields go up, if if rates go up, they just make more money. They have a higher revenue. Uh, line, not necessarily higher profits. Am I reading that right? Yeah, but they got destroyed because money was coming wow. out of and actually going into money market funds and that that destroys them because otherwise they kept all of that margin. So that's right. I, 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 listen, could, it, could the stock fall 10% tomorrow? Yeah, why not? Uh, if it does, I'll buy more. But you got to think that like most of the, all of what we just said is very well known. This is not going to shock anybody. So can we put this chart up? Does this qualify as higher lows? Is there anything here? This is and eh, no, I don't think so. There's nothing here, right? No, no. Okay, uh, I'm not in this trade. I I've been in it since uh, last spring. I think once made a little bit of money very quickly. But I don't I don't know. It's for me. It's it's just too hard right now. I think it's I think it's one of the I think it's one of the best financial companies in America. I just don't know that I feel that way about its stock right now. Mm, it's uh, I still think we're in a tough environment. So. Fair. Uh, um, but we, 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 we hope for the best but you for know what? Schwab shareholders. I am counting on the fact that the market looks is going to look past this because that's what it does, right? Okay. Tough times are here where for would now. You, where, would you, where would you take a profit in this? Um, like 80 in the 80 area. Let's say they come out tomorrow. They manage to beat fairly low expectations. They announce like a huge buyback and say something exciting and – the stock gaps up 12%. Would you just take it? No. You wouldn't take it? No. Okay. No. Okay, it's commendable of you, sir. Not looking for 12% here. Um, okay. Uh, Torsten Slack does like a daily chart newsletter type thing. And there's one this week that was really noteworthy, at least to me it was. 
the outlook for 10-year rates. So they're showing a chart of the standard deviation of private sector forecasters for 10-year interest rates. And at least going back to the beginning of 2019, there, there, there is no consensus. There's actually wild disagreement among forecasters, which I thought was noteworthy. I don't understand. I don't understand the chart. What, it's why showing is the standard, standard deviation it's, it's, the, the the y axis. What's that? Oh, because there's sh- all right. I get it now. This is the standard deviation of private sector forecasters' ten year interest rate forecasts. So this is how far the actual has been from the cons- from the forecast. No, this is comparing forecasters to each other, and they're showing like if there was like a dot plot or something. There's wild oh, so the disagreement is going up. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I got it. Why do you think that is? Just just because of how volatile rates have been in general? Does that create more uh, disagreement within you know, the consensus? I was surprised because I thought that the consensus was for lower Fed funds rate. Now, maybe the disagreement is, is how far ahead the 10-year has gotten in front of that. So like the 10-year is already down to 4, 4.05%. Right. And the Fed funds rate are what, five to five and a quarter? So the 10 year yeah. is well ahead of that. So there's probably people the, that think it's appropriate, appropriate on or the way, on down. the way down. Or no, even if the Fed does take rates from five and a quarter to 400, why should the 10 year not trade at a premium to that? No, I was saying the 10 year is ahead of the, is ahead of the two year on the way lower. Correct. Yields on the Correct. way lower. So right. the 10 year already priced in all those cuts. It's, a, it's pretty incredible. And it did it fast. I think it started like mid-November and knocked out the whole thing in like six weeks. Really fast. So uh, that, that's pretty incredible. All right. Uh, what are we doing next? Is it me? Oh, it's you. I was looking at, I was, I was looking at, I've done a, a couple of screens over the weekend. Um, the weather's not great. And I'm just, oh, who do we have at the door? Hang on a second. Oh, look at this. Sean Russo. Ladies and gentlemen. From the Sean research Wave. squad at Ritholtz Wealth Management, Sean Russo. Sean, you can't hear them, but they're all applauding. Uh, I was looking at some of the worst performing stocks, and I thought, what are like the most despised names in the NASDAQ? And what's my metric for despised? I didn't want to look at analyst ratings. Wait, I hang on, Josh. To, like, I'm, sorry actually- to cut, I'm sorry to interrupt. However, this is the first time I believe that our audience is, she- is seeing Sean Russo. So maybe an introduction is in order? Sean, Sean Russo from the sh- research squad at Red Holtz. More? A little Sean, bit. What can we tell people? What can we tell people about you? We can tell them that his mic's and not his working. Mic is off. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan, off. Duncan. Sean joined us two years ago. He's been an absolute godsend, made our lives a lot easier, helps us with everything that we come up with for the show, for the company, research-wise, portfolio-wise. He's been just a godsend. So we love you, Sean. All right. There and they're and they're Unbelievable. What a new whale. There we go. There There's we go. There's no way I did that. There we go. You did do it. Done the, I've you done got so times. excited you muted yourself. Well, They're roasting you in the comments right now. Give it to me. <laughs> Amateur, rookie, Sean right, gets an right. L. I deserve it. <laughs> so what did well, Sean, what did you put together to show, tonight for us? So I basically just screened the 20 worst performing, actually the 20 stocks in the NASDAQ that are off the most from highs. And then that's like you know, all, all from their own from, the from their own highs, all time highs. Yeah. 
Okay. And most of these highs were set in 2021? Yeah, for the most for the most part, yeah. Okay. Let's throw this up on the screen. What do we have here? So that thick black line after Atlassian Corp is basically the dividing line. Those top eight are the hateful eight. These are the most hated of the NASDAQ. Let's call them tech, biotech, communications, uh, PayPal's financial services, but we're, we're, we're including it. Um, exactly. I want to I run these down very quickly. Sirius XM is the worst. Ugh. It's 92% below its all-time high. That's incredible. PayPal is not much better. 80% drawdown. Um, Moderna, 75, 79. Illumina, 75. Warner Brothers Discovery, 62. DoorDash, 60. Charter Communications down 55%. And Atlassian, which most people call team, the ticker is team, is down 50%. So that's where we, we divided uh, the list. And the general idea is, Mike, do we run this as a draft? Or you can just take any four you want, regardless of whether or not I take it. Yeah, you know what? I didn't realize that we were restricted to eight. I used the whole list, but that's fine. Listen, I'm a pro. I could audible. I could audible on the okay. fly. Let's do it. I'll go first. I think it's I think it's your best four equal weighted versus my best four, and they could be the same, right? We're okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. Not, not? all four the same, but all right. Um, well, why don't you draft first? What do you got? What, what do you want to take? Are we going to do one at a time? Or do you want to just know. do? Give me, give, me, give me four. All right. So I own two of these pieces of shit. Uh, so I'll start there. <laughs> I, own, I only own one. <laughs> I own PayPal and okay. Moderna. And I saw the news on PayPal today. I just don't know that this is news, new news. Like everyone knows that Apple is destroying them. Uh, is that reason enough? Oh, you enough saw to- the, the downgrade from uh, my guy, from Dan Dola. Yeah, yeah. Is that reason enough to own the stock? Listen, I would have much preferred it to be up on a downgrade, but it wasn't. It actually did sell off a pretty decent volume. So, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna stick around for much longer if, if this thing continues this downtrend. Um, but it's on your list. But it's on my list. It's, it's so list. cheap. Okay. It's like literally the cheapest it's ever been. It's like for good reason. Earnings for good reason. It, Apple is destroying it's, it's, them. It's pricing. It's pricing in no growth ever. There should be a buyer. I feel like at some point, like I use Venmo probably every week. So it's not like completely useless. How much do you think you pay uh, PayPal every time you use Venmo? What percentage? I honestly have no idea, but I don't okay, even zero. look. It's zero. This is the problem. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the things uh, Dan wrote, Dan's an analyst covering fintech for Nomura, and one of the problems he lists is after all this time and all this usage, they still haven't figured out a monetization strategy for Venmo. One thing they were thinking about doing was making it so that when you use Venmo at checkout in e-commerce, the vendor pays Venmo for the privilege of accepting Venmo as a payment form. But I, I don't know if that ever really turned into anything. So I, I, I agree it's cheap, but it's cheap for a reason. I agree it's cheap with, for a reason. Listen, it's dangerous to say, oh, it's down 80%. How much? No, it could go all the way down. Right, yeah, <laughs> like it it's still a sixty billion dollar market cap. So there's, there's, you know, I'm not saying that there's a there's a high ceiling or high floor in the stock. Who the hell knows? All right, you got another uh, one. Number two is Moderna, and okay. I have no. Why? What's that? Why? I have no fundamental thesis here whatsoever, other than the well, fact I'm that in, it's, I'm in. Other than the fact that it stopped going down. That's it. Okay. That's it. You think it's you think it's you think we've seen the the worst that we'll see there. I mean, I own the stock. 
if so, the pharmaceuticals, if the pharmaceuticals are starting to act better relative to the market, which they are, then I feel like that gives Moderna at least like a, a nice foundation for for the selling to to stop. I don't know, Sean. What aren't we considering with that one mRNA? Uh, I mean, just on an earnings basis, it's damn near as cheap as the S and P five hundred. So I feel like if they get one good drug or like one good catalyst in the stock, it's going to be a rocket ship because that's not priced in. Ooh, a rocket ship. So, so I like si- that. similar to similar to PayPal, I guess. Like yeah. nobody is expecting anything. Uh, anything positive out of that name. Yeah. Uh, all right, you got two more? Yeah, DoorDash looks really, really healthy, just technically, but I just, I I hate this company. Not, I just, <laughs> I just think it's just beyond know, egregious. That stock's, that, just, stock's go, that stock's going up, dude. I, I know, it looks good. I can't in good conscience uh, recommend it, though. Um, Warner Brothers, I think is, there's, there's nothing there. I don't think there's anybody coming to save them. Uh, team looks decent. So I'm going to go with that. Uh, okay. Stock looks good there. And then the series out. Absolutely no way. I already So just by process of, elimina- uh, process of elimination. Oh, why, wait, why is, Siri, why is Siri uninvestable? It's a $5 stock. You actually pay for do, it. You're, I do pay for it, customer. but it's, just, it's been a piece of garbage forever. Forever. Uh, There's no... There's no reason to think the thesis is changing here. The company stinks. Uh, the chart stinks. Absolutely not. You know the what? Product just, stinks. Is it? What is? But what is? The, I what hate is the, the problem? New app. What uh, is the problem? The problem is that Howard Stern nope. is in his seventies and not funny anymore. So, and listen, they have nothing I love, to back it up. Back it I, up. I, I love Howard. I am a lifelong fan since I was a little boy, and I don't listen anymore. That's um, right. I don't listen anymore. Nobody's nobody's paying for that product. There's just too many other options. All right, you know what? Regrettably, I mean, regrettably, I have to go DoorDash. I have no other options. So DoorDash, uh, DoorDash, PayPal, Moderna, and uh, Team. Can I make a DoorDash comment? Please. Like, I don't understand why anybody would use DoorDash over Uber Eats. Nobody like, would. You'd have it's to, all, DoorDash you'd have is to already a, embedded a, within Uber Eats. So why? You'd have to be some kind of Amish where somebody handed you a phone for the first time. And you like the logo of one over the other? There'd be no, there'd be absolutely no reason that anyone would ever use DoorDash versus Uber. There's no pricing difference, and Uber is just you. It, you use it for other things in your life. Josh, I'm, before, I'm biased. Before I'm biased. we get before we get to your four, what was your thoughts on Uber shutting down Drizzly? They Brilliant. paid a they paid a billion bucks for it. Doesn't like two, matter. Years ago, you know what they did by buying it? They boxed out anyone else from even attempting. And it's not that they're going to stop delivering alcohol. They're going to move over all of those customers into the Uber app. Yeah. The, the Uber app is the everything app. There's no reason why alcohol should be separate. So they learned the business by buying it. Now they discard the shell and they sucked all the meat out of it. It's like a crab leg. Throw, toss, it, toss it out the window. <laughs> all right, what's I'm your four? I'm with you now. All right. Uh, I think, I, think um, I agree with a lot of what your comments were, but not, a, not all of them. I'm going to go Warner Brothers. There is just uh, there's just no way this full year goes by and nothing happens on the M&A front. There's a way. A worst case a worst case scenario is they do something strategically dumb that the equity can't recover from, which I I agree is a risk. Uh I don't think it's status quo. Also keep in mind uh House of Dragon season 2 is coming back this year. 
True Detective debuted on Sunday night. Which was Dude, bar- their, bar- bar- Forget about that. Barbie couldn't save him. Come on. All of their hits, all of their hits. People don't necessarily subscribe to an app for a movie, for a TV show that everyone's talking about every week. That's a different story. That's true. That's all true. of their hits are coming back this year. That's Under, true. Did you watch? Underrated the power of that. You're right. Did you watch True Detective yet? I'm watching it tonight. Of course I did. Amazing. I watched it, cool. I watched it live and then went back to the football game after. Was it amazing? I just love it. I can't wait. I just love it. I, love I just it love the vibes. I love, love Jodie Foster. The vibes. I just, I'm so excited. You watch it, Sean? Yeah, the vibes are killer. The Literally. vibes are so haunted. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's going to be so ominous. good to see this. All right, number two. So that's my number one. My number two, I'm going to take serious because it's a $5 stock. No other reason. And? Okay. All right. Good enough. Good enough. Here's why. If nothing fundamentally gets better, the stock could still go to seven just by accident. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to take PayPal. They have a new CEO. It's priced for zero growth. The Apple news, everyone knows that that Apple pay is killing them in the shopping cart. If they come up with something to do, that's better than what they've been doing at any point this year. The stock could be 70 in a blink. Um, so I don't think it's going back to the glory days. I just think I'm being, I'm paying very little uh, relative to what the potential is. So those are my three. And then I'm going to do uh, Illumina, which makes equipment for the life sciences industry. And it's just been a controversial stock. Carl Icahn has been involved in this. It's been absolutely destroyed. Uh, but it should rebound with the healthcare sector and with the pharma stocks. It should trade somewhat in line with them. Moderna might be the better pick, but I'm going Illumina because yeah, uh, okay. I don't tr- I don't trust the the Frenchman who runs uh, Moderna. I don't like the cut of his jib. So that's where I am. Sean, have you recorded mentally our four choices? Yes, got it okay. written down. <laughs> and we will be tracking the hateful aid throughout the course of the year. Yep. Will there be good natured ribbing? Uh, I'll try my best before Michael fires me. Hey, you did a really great job on the show. Thank you so much for popping in to join us. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you rock and roll. I know I'm going to see you tomorrow, right? Yep. Yes. Me too. Yes, sir. Good job, Sean. All right. I'll see you in NYC tomorrow. All right. That's Sean Russo, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we have anything left? We we have one more. Yeah, we got, we got one more. We got one more. Josh, last week you came to lunch and you were telling us about Bryn about Brent Talkington's new Ray-Ban Facebook sunglasses. And I was really excited about I have more what on were, this, by the way, I was really yeah. excited about what you were saying. Do you want to go, go ahead? I went to, uh, I, I was in uh, Hudson Yards yesterday. Yeah. They have a giant, they have a giant, uh, is it a sunglass hut or a Ray-Ban store? Sunglass hut probably. Been a, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It might've been a stores. Ray-Ban store. Might've been a Ray-Ban store. Yeah. Anyway, they have, they have, the, it's not just Wayfarers. They have like five different models of Ray-Bans oh, with really? the meta technology. And I was playing with them in the store. I was trying them all on. I think this is going to be even bigger than I, than I thought last week. Everybody in the store was trying these things on. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I really think these are going to go. Okay. Um, my dad, so hardware AI virtual reality is coming in a big way. And I feel like we're not making a big enough deal about it. My dad called me and mm. he was telling me that he got the Oculus. So my dad is retired and he was like, do you know, do you know about these things? 
And he was just wait, what? Yeah. What made him do? Is he a video game guy? <laughs> no. What and got he, him he, to buy? Where did he buy I, it? Dude, I have no idea. I have no Come idea. On. He was blown away. He was raving about it. I'm like, no, I know. Raving. Wait, like he ordered it. I'm fascinated by this. Like he bought it on the internet. He saw an ad for it, clicked it, and bought it. He must have. He must what have. What does it do right out of the box? Dude, I don't know. Like, I haven't, I've, I've never tried one on. But okay. he's telling me that he's like, he's like, I was on the mountains in Peru and I was here and just raving about it. So okay. um, there was, before we get to the Vision Pro, there was- Batnick's, uh Batnick Dad Index, uh, Roger Weatherford said. <laughs> things, things your dad is into. We're going to put them all in a, did you in a list. See, did you see any of the demo of the video that I sent to you and Ben from that company? Packy was tweeting about this. Uh, Rabbit, the R1. Yeah. It's kind of cool. And is whether it a or not, wearable or is it like a device? Though? It's a I tiny little thing that goes that in your is. pocket. So what, okay. it, what, this thing, what this thing does, the R1, they already sold 40,000 units. What it does is it basically brings... It, it it brings the AI to life. So when you're typing to ChatGPT, there's no action. So you could do that. You could, but you could you could order the Uber through this thing. You could you could buy plane tickets. You could tell it to book a flight, book a trip. You're trying to do this, and then actually execute it through the hardware. It's pretty neat. So whether or not this is the one, it, it's not even relevant. The point is this category is yeah. going to be gigantic, and it's going to be maybe a dud out of the gate. So for example, the Vision Pro is getting some really, really gnarly, gnarly reviews. This thing hits the market on February 2nd and there, there's a demo. Let me just read from, from Bloomberg's article. The demo begins with a retail worker scanning the user's face with an app in a similar fashion to setting up Face ID. This scan will tell the employee hosting the demo which light seal, foam, cushion, and band size the customer will need. The light seal, which keeps outside light from leaking in, comes in more than 25 shapes and sizes. The cushions come in two sizes. Um, if a person is wearing glasses, the store will have a device to scan the lenses. For I mean, it's a whole thing. It takes 25 minutes just for the demo and the setup. And Mark Gurman, who covers Apple for Bloomberg, said, the Vision Pro virtual keyboard is a complete write-off, at least in 1.0. You have to poke each key finger each key one finger at a time like you did before you learned how to type. There is no magical in-air typing. You can also look at a character and pinch. You're going to want a Bluetooth keyboard. So I think that the first version of this thing is going to get destroyed, destroyed by critics. Now, that being said, I cannot wait for version two, three, four. I still think that yeah. even though it's going to stumble out of the gate, it's going to be it's going to it's going to be a monster category. It's going to be magic. We had that conversation with Dan Ives. We we already know what the headlines are going to be. But it, like it the, sounds bad. It does sound bad. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure because they're they're putting something out that's a they're not inventing the category. They're inventing it from the Apple perspective. And the version one of all of their shit was silly. The first iPod wasn't like a monster hit right out of the gates. People looked at it and said. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It only holds 50 songs. I think like, the you difference have to is- have an imagination. You're right. I agree. The difference is that now Apple is Apple and people's expectations need to be recalibrated because it's not yeah, going to be- It's not going to be what the iPhone is today, uh, uh, right out of the gates. It's just not. That's true. Look, I, uh, I'm i not buying the first one of this. I, I'm not the person that buys really the, the first one of anything. The, by the fifth one, we can't live without it. 
How many times? Yeah, I can't wait. How many times has that played out? I can't wait. So yeah, I'm hundred percent on the same page with you. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this stuff all year. A okay. Lot. You're yeah. up. You're going to make the case. Okay. Um, I want to talk about AMD and technicals. Uh, and that's it. I, I don't want to even talk fundamentals, but John, let's go to the chart on. This is a stock that I own and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just trying to teach a lesson. If I, if I may, to people that are buying to individual stocks. Never doubt Michael when no, he's getting stop. long That's a name. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, dude, I own plenty of pieces of garbage, as I already mentioned. So, Josh, I was with you on this day. This was December 7th. AMD was up 10% on the day. And I said mm. to you, what did I say to you? Uh, about AMD or just- I general? said, I'm buying more. I'm buying more yeah, today. You did. I said, listen- this is the professional move. The stock is up ten percent. The hardest trade, hardest trade to make. The stock is up ten percent on the day, and I'm buying more. Yeah. And yeah. this is a move that I never would have made in my yesteryears, but I've learned a thing or two, and it doesn't always work out. Uh, but next chart, please, John. AMD is up twenty five percent since that ten percent up day. So this is not a victory lap. I'm just saying. No, no, that no. I, I the lesson is so important that yes. you're giving people is that. When you see that much strength in a stock, it doesn't automatically mean that you're seeing the end of the move. Like a lot of times- it's the beginning of a new big, one. Yeah, a lot of times like a huge burst of buying is just a precursor. And it, it, it people, it's, it's actually rare. It's actually rare that a stock will crash to a new low from a new high. That's not what usually happens. Doesn't work that way. So people, but it's hard. It's, it's really, really hard. Look, it's really hard to own something- and then it's up 20%. And, and you sit there and look at it and like, why are all these other people buying it? Like maybe I need to own more of it than I own. It's but then I'm going to raise easier. my average cost. It's 10 times easier to take profits than to buy more when buying more yeah. is usually the right move. So that's the okay. lesson. Okay. I don't, I don't hate that lesson. Uh, it doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. Of course, nothing does. Nothing always it, just because something doesn't always work doesn't mean there's no value to understanding it. Okay, I have a mystery chart for you. Slightly off the beaten path, but I'm not going to make it that hard for you. Okay, okay. John, if you please. What in the hell is this? <laughs> Dude, what the hell is this? Bear with me. <laughs> I mean, the, what is this? All right, the, go ahead. The, the clue is in the price, and I'm going to give you two more. Clue number two, it's not a stock. No, no kidding. It's not a stock. What is this? What is this? It's not economic a stock. data? Hold on. Sort of. Go ahead. One more time. Okay. No, there's another the chart. There's another chart there. Give me the, no, give me the other chart. Okay. okay. Look at the price. Oh, I know what this is. I do know what this is. Okay. I think I know what this is. I only gave you two clues. Is this natural gas? No. Sadly, mm. no. One more, one more clue. Uh... uh it's, it's something not, we really haven't had to talk about for a long time because it just has not shown up at the party. It's not the VIX. It is the VIX. Look this at a, you. It's a horrible Look at looking you. chart. Round of applause. Yeah. So here's how I bring this up. You see this spike from the first week of the year? Chop back on. See this spike from the first week of the year? Yeah, spike. That's yeah, above okay. the. That's above the prior high. And I know we don't really do this with. with Dude, it spiked to thirteen. Go ahead. No, but my point is, it's like it. We might have seen the VIX low uh, during the last week of the year, and or, or or during the Christmas week, 
and 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 now it just might be like back like back in the conversation the the yeah, I'd, lack I'd of that. volatility i'd buy that i want to uh i want to go to this next chart this is the vix versus the 10 year treasury note yield okay so you see that you see that these vix spikes are being accompanied with spikes in the yield on the 10 year yeah so bear you know bears bears paying attention to that's all Absolutely. that's all I'll that's all I'll say. If we keep Listen, getting slightly hot economic data and that 10 year keeps perking up, you're gonna see the VIX back in, in the game. That's all I'm gonna tell you. We had an incredible November, December run for the stock market. Yeah. It would not surprise me at all if we Bear tread killer. water, chop it up, go nowhere, digest. In fact, it would surprise me if we kept going higher, frankly. So nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. If we give a little bit back and, and we get a little here's, bit of spike, here's my point. If we're like a VIX fifteen sixteen and not twelve thirteen, in that environment, you don't just keep adding new stocks to the portfolio. It's just because you're not getting rewarded the next day after you bought it. That's how things have been for the last couple of. You buy something, you're up relatively quickly after. Mm-hmm. If but that's in a VIX eleven twelve thirteen regime. If if that changes. And you're back in that 15, 16 neighborhood where everyone thinks you're about to hit 20 again. You don't just keep looking for new stocks. Josh, you made, you made you made such a great analogy with Joe and JC about the professional fishermen, professional traders. They know yeah. that there's there's a season for everything. There's a time to fish and there's a time to avoid the waters. That's right. So we're it bear it bears watching. I'm watching that 10-year yield. The 10-year yield is the the most important exhibition. In terms of like how people are feeling about the higher for longer inflation shit. And if that starts to change, I think stock volatility is going to change right along with it. And I don't see any real way around it. So just wanted to spotlight that. But you did guess it with two clues, which is not bad considering how weird their chart was. So I mean, that's a congratulations. Weird chart. Uh, I don't know what Michael's won. We'll find out after what, what his prize is. But I want to let you guys know hey, everybody, tomorrow is Wednesday. <laughs> My favorite podcast is back. All new Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben on Thursday. An all new edition of Ask the Compound. If you want to get Ben your questions, there's an email that you can use to submit those questions. Duncan, is it still the same email? Do we know? What is it? Yes, it is. And what is it? Ask the Compound Show at Gmail? All right. All right. Ask the compound show at gmail.com if you want to be part of that show. Uh, and then Friday, an all new compound of friends. Thank you guys so much for watching tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks for all the likes. We will see you soon. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash TheCompoundRWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. 
Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.